Well, welcome to episode 107 of Professor and the Hack. Uh, I am the Hack, Hugh Rimmington. With me is the Professor, Peter Van Onselen. We've been locked in a small room now for days. It seems like weeks. We've been going backwards and forwards <laughs> over the same issues. We don't seem to be getting any further. PVO, for heaven's sake, just just put us out of our misery. What's it going to be? Net zero? And do we have an interim target? Oh, it's going to be, it's definitely going to be net zero for 2050. I mean, the prime, we'll talk about this, no doubt, but the prime minister's all but told the nationals that he's going forth with it, whether they like it or not. He told his own party room uh, that this is a cabinet decision. So it becomes a courtesy uh, to talk to both his own party room and to the nationals. Now that is not to suggest that it's not important and that, you know, there, there's not risks for any leader. We've certainly seen that in recent years if you don't let your party room in on things that might only be cabinet decisions. But because he's not planning to take net zero by 2050 as a target to parliament to be legislated, and he's already batted away attempts to legislate it by Labor and the crossbench already this parliamentary week, because he doesn't intend to do that, he absolutely doesn't need his party room because there's no vote on the floor of the House. Now, obviously, a lot of people say that that makes the target somewhat meaningless. Other people say the target's somewhat meaningless anyway, if you don't have a viable plan to get there. And there are huge question marks around whatever his plan is. We don't have a carbon price per se. As for the 2030, target he's also Hugh ruled out any increase in that so even though we're according to their rhetoric meeting and beating our 2030 target and you can debate whether that's true or how that's even conceptualized to be true we're not going to try to do better seemingly uh, by upping that target uh, either so that's where all this lands but I just want to say this very quickly it's just a pantomime when it comes to the National Party there's people like Matt Canavan they'll never change their view uh, he will always be a dissenter on this but it's a pantomime watch for the moment where the Prime Minister stands up possibly with Barnaby Joyce and declares that the Nationals have agreed notwithstanding the odd maverick who disagrees and he'll be talking about how I tell you what Barnaby's driven a really hard bargain for the regions, uh, Australia. But, you know, I decided to give him what he needs because that's what he is, a, pr- a proud, strong advocate for those regions that Nationals represent. So we're upping compensation of some form or another to them or exemptions to them. And I'm off to Glasgow with the National Party's support, even though I may not have needed it. It's a complete pantomime in my view. Well, it's, it's, a, pan- it's a pantomime, but it's a necessary one for the government because it gives a... Uh, some rags of clothing that he can go. In fact, it's not a, it's, you know, I mean, I look at it and say, well, hang on, didn't Barnaby Joyce get re-elected as the leader of the National Party because he was determined not to have under Michael McCormack, the Nationals sleepwalking into net zero. He was, he'd been put back in there to fight the good fight against net zero. So he he has to put on a pantomime all of his own and no one puts on a better pantomime than Barnaby. <laughs> and I should say, I think it's a pantomime, but I, what I really more mean by that is that it's just been orchestrated. You know, I, I don't think, you know, I, I don't think that what we're hearing publicly from Barnaby Joyce or indeed from Scott Morrison uh, echoes uncertainty in private. I think between them uh, and between their offices, they've sat down, they've hatched out that they need to let this process run. Uh, but at the end of it, here's where we're going to go. So in other words, you know, they've got a plan. Uh, they may not have a plan on climate, but they've got a plan for how to spin whatever this plan on climate is to accommodate the nationals after a period of pretense that there was this back and forth to be able to give both sides a win. You know, Scott Morrison is holding to his guns. I'm going to get the 2050 zero target uh, in place. And 
Barnaby Joyce doesn't look like he's capitulated in the wake of exactly what you say, Hugh, about the circumstances of taking over the leadership of the Nationals because he's apparently spent these last few weeks doggedly fighting to get more, uh, even though you probably could have ticked the box on that some time ago in terms of what happened behind the scenes. And so the, the two losers are arguably the planet, but also the taxpayer, because if, if I've got it right and I am merely a hack, there's no linear path to net zero in 2050. 2050 anyway is often in the never-never in terms of political cycles. That's mm. the point of it, I guess. But so there's no linear drive there. So the idea is that you front load all the compensation, the billions of dollars that are going to be announced that Barnaby has won, won for the regions and particularly for Queensland, billions of dollars, all the boondoggles you can possibly imagine are going to get sluiced out. And yet the idea is, is that we don't come close to actually getting to net zero until the last few years, when like the cavalry in the old John Wayne movies, the technology comes riding over the hill and saves us all and gets us to the target. It's, it's, I mean, another way to put that would be that it's just a complete load of horseshit. Hmm. <laughs> Politically, <laughs> though. I mean, did you agree, though? Like, I, I think it's one of those things where, you know, the, that plan, which I think you're exactly right, because it's not linear, that plan is one that happens irrespective of what they're arguing they're going to do in the short term. That, that compensation side of it isn't, if you like, part of a plan to achieve net zero it's all just about trying to shut down noisy sectional interests who are going to be frustrated by the gallop towards it that is a late gallop so they're going to get all of their rent seeking assistance now uh, but that rent seeking assistance is not encouraging them or enabling them to get us to net zero it's just doling out the cash to shut them up smart politics Probably. Yeah, probably. I mean, it's it, this has been so politicised. I mean, I wrote a column uh, last weekend in The Australian slamming all sides, but disproportionately slamming the Conservatives. Uh, but, you know, the politics of this has just been so messy for so long. You know, the, the Greens let the perfect be the enemy of the good when they killed off Kevin Rudd's original ETS. That would have probably avoided any of this discussion in the framing that we're having now. Uh, they did that. Labor was gutless. Uh, when it came to backing Kevin Rudd in. Rudd himself was gutless about the greatest moral challenge of, of our time. He didn't even call a double disillusion election on it. And don't even get me started on Malcolm Turnbull. Malcolm Turnbull professes to be this great warrior of climate change action, but when it was expedient to dump commitments in that philosophical direction to assume the numbers, to assume the leadership and take out Tony Abbott, he was prepared to do exactly that. So the worst of the worst are the deniers and the Neanderthals who don't want any form of action and the rent seekers who want money if there is to be action. But let's not cast aside and forgive the enablers in all of this as well, uh, who have, you know, and, and frankly, that includes media organisations that have allowed, you know, the one percenters who are climate change deniers to fill 99% of the airwaves. You know, these people uh, right across the spectrum have not done enough. And that's why younger generations are sitting there, Hugh, listening to this, you know, including my kids, no doubt yours as well. They're just looking at it, just going, for God's sakes, you lot have completely let us down. It's interesting that when you hear Scott Morrison 
making his case for net zero. He frames it, as do a whole bunch of writers in the newspaper for whom you're a columnist, as an economic argument. Essentially, the economic train has left the station, that uh, capital markets are shifting investment uh, habits and, and processes are shifting behind uh, the newer technologies that are coming on. Uh, Anthony Albanese says already renewables are cheaper, so you don't need to ever bring in a carbon tax from now on because the signal is already there in the market, essentially. But in framing it purely in those economic terms and making those cases, we ignore the actual environmental imperative, uh, which was contained in the IPCC report. And, and that is that uh, ultimately, the economic arguments, the political games that get played are mere sideshows. The, the absolute imperative is bound up in a warming planet. And um, China not going there is an enormous problem unless they send a minor functionary, but with a big suitcase full of things they're going to offer um, and then stick to them. So, you know, there are some problems for the planet yet to go. And I guess that's going to make Glasgow so interesting. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and unless something changes, I'm, I'm going to be there to, to watch it all transpire firsthand, which will of itself be fascinating. And then we can reconvene and, and discuss it on the other side of that. Uh, a couple of things, though. Firstly, the Stern Review, as I know you well know, uh, out of the UK, uh, that was released in late 2006. And it foreshadowed all of these economic imperatives that are now being discussed in 2021 as we almost hit 2022 as though it's a new thing you know and the stern review made the important point that you had to be economically to get full value for it out in front of all of these in terms of the shift that was forthcoming which is now well and truly upon us australia didn't follow that nearly sufficiently nor did a lot of other countries but australia in particular uh, but you know I, I take the view on this that you know there's also an issue and the problem is a lot of climate change deniers or skeptics jump on the bandwagon of what i'm about to talk about and they distort the otherwise important value of it action on climate change is absolutely important there's no two ways about that the scientific consensus is in it's 99 don't believe the one percent as you get so much more than one percent of the airtime however Adaptation isn't talked about enough. The reality that we have to do something about climate change, it's not a binary choice. We do need to try to curtail it to the extent that we can, but we also have to face up to the inevitable reality that we're not going to curtail it as much as we need to or could or should or would or would like to have if we'd thought about this a long time ago. So we need to also be really pumping a lot of time into adaptation. What is it going to do, particularly in areas like the subcontinent on floodplains, uh, you know, areas that are prone to more extreme weather? What can humanity do to adapt to the inevitability of climate change, albeit not then making it a, a binary call that that means you don't bother to try to curtail it? You do both. Uh, but I don't know that we're doing enough and that there is enough talk as a society uh, around adaptation to go with it. Yeah, look, we're going to have to do it or otherwise, which I think is going to happen anyway, you're going to see catastrophic consequences for people and they'll tend to fall most heavily on the poorest people. But, you know, as we're seeing with yep. the California wildfires, the very wealthy are not immune uh, from what goes on. But the arguments I hear from the environmentalists is that adaptation, uh, unless you're dealing with the actual warming of the planet, the adaptation is a permanent and constant impost. You're constantly uh, having to adapt and readapt and strengthen and, and, and raise sea walls. And, you know, so that can never end as long as the planet keeps on rising. The, you know, the cheapest way to deal with it is to try to um, manage the, the rising in the first place. On the politics, though, uh, what's come out of this National Party 
scrap, particularly in Queensland over this, is that they plainly do not fear losing their seats to the Labour Party, or at least that doesn't seem to be in their, in their structure of thinking. They are concerned about losing their seats to United Australia Party candidate or to One Nation or to the Shooters and the Fishers, uh, if, if you go uh, out of Queensland, or perhaps even to a Liberal Democrat Party, uh, now with Campbell Newman as the, the sort of the face of it in, in Queensland. So they see themselves as vulnerable on the right. And I just wonder from a Labour Party perspective, that wouldn't appear to be encouraging to them in their thinking that they have to pick up seats in Queensland, uh, do better in Queensland to win the next election. How do you read that? Do you think that there is still a chance for Labour to pick up those sort of coal and resources seats? Or is that a game already lost? It's either the Nationals or the Liberal National Party uh, or a drift uh, to someone even more on the lunar extremes? Oh, look, I, I think that there's still a chance to win them, but it's it's on the margins, isn't it? Like, it's a lot harder for them to pick up those seats uh, than it is for the government to retain them, partly because the margins uh, are so high. You know, when you when you look up in, in those seats in Queensland, particularly uh, the top half of Queensland, uh, a lot of them aren't even technically classified as marginal, even though they are some of the more marginal seats in Queensland. So it's not just that the LNP holds the absolute lion's share of seats in Queensland. The margins on which they hold them make them more impregnable than they might have otherwise been. Uh, but that said, I, I think you're right. I think that the LNP members there are more concerned about a sort of a, a third-way candidate of a one nation variety or, or local independent variety, knocking them off if they, you know, succumb to climate change action, for example, uh, in the wake of coal uh, producing jobs or whatever else it might be. But I actually think that they're a little bit blind to the reality that if there is a move on, then uh, seats just plummet. Uh, it's the, the, the big question though is, is there actually a move on? And there doesn't seem to be. It seems like the government's on the nose in, in a lot of areas in Australia. Uh, however, I don't get that sort of baseball bats out sense that you heard Wayne Goss talk about in the lead up to him losing his state election uh, before Paul Keating lost federally in 96, where he felt like he was a, a victim of, of anti-Labor sentiment because of the federal shift that was going on. I don't get that sense under Anthony Albanese with Scott Morrison, but I do get the sense that there are seats to change hands, uh, perhaps more so in the West, actually, than, than in Queensland, uh, which probably feeds to your point, Hugh. That's why uh, these... LMP members uh, are more worried about their right flank than their left flank. Are we heading for a pre-Christmas election? We'll have a chat about that. We'll just take a quick break. No, 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 of course we're not. <laughs> Welcome back. This is uh, The Professor and the Hack, episode 107. Get out your walking sticks. That's a big number. Um, now, Albo is telling his troops, look out for a December election. Is he just trying to keep people awake in their chairs? What's going on? <laughs> look, I, look, I guess it's an outside chance. Uh, and no doubt, uh, not that this has ever happened before with predictions. If, if I'm wrong, uh, just before the break there, Hugh, that may well be replayed ad nauseum uh, while I'm on the campaign trail covering a December 11 election. There's always Prime Ministers always have the right to call an early election. So if somehow he came back from Glasgow as Albo is pontificating might occur and he called the election because he had polling and research that suggested that that was his best chance and he saw risks across the summer 
which were not risks that were to his favour. So therefore, he didn't want to have an election in, say, March next year instead. And he went for the unusual timing of an election on December 11. Uh, he, he could quickly do it, uh, but it would take a lot of people on his own side by surprise. I think Albanese is just trying to keep the troops uh, you know, focused uh, on the possibility of an election. He'll then look to do the same as a message to them uh, if there's not an early election as they go into uh, into the recess over summer to remind them that this is not a summer period where they can afford to do anything other than be on the campaign hustings, particularly candidates who want to pick up seats. I, I think it's far, far more likely that we have an early election next year. But I guess you know, in the land of politics and election time, and you can never say never because it's, it's at the whim of the Prime Minister, really. I mean, to, it just just the practical timings of the law of elections, he would have to pretty much announce it as he came down the, uh, you know, the steps from the plane, wouldn't he, as he comes gets back from Glasgow? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, he does, he's got, you know, minimum turnaround times of around four weeks or so. Uh, so he can't, he, you know, he, he would have to get right into that for a December 11 election because he'll be heading over there around about 29, 28 October and he'll be there till, uh, you know, certainly for five or six days. So, uh, you know, needing to give that that notice of a little over four weeks for an election campaign, he would have to do it almost instantaneously on his on his return to Australia. And, and does he want that at a time when borders are still closed? You know, like even though, we know that um, Anastasia Palaszczuk is opening Queensland up earlier. She's not opening it up early enough for him to campaign for an election on December 11. WA certainly isn't opening up in time uh, and he will want to get to those states, WA in particular, on an election campaign trail and he won't want to be getting exemptions to do it because then that becomes the story rather than whatever it is that he's actually campaigning on. So I think that months over summer, on balance, you would have to think politically looking at it uh, are in Morrison's favour, not Albanese's favour to delay it. Even if ultimately Morrison were to still lose the election, I think he has more to gain from holding off until early next year. Uh, and Albanese has more to gain from going earlier just by virtue of looking at where the polling sits and, and looking at some of the practicalities of campaigning. So good practical reasons for uh, for the election to be next year. It's interesting. I, I read in that uh, noble paper of record, the Saturday paper, uh, a former colleague, Paul Bongiorno, a columnist there. But uh, there was another article recently which made the point that although the polling numbers um, or the national poll show uh, Labour ahead, uh, pointing to the preferred prime minister um, uh, numbers and pointing out that Labour has only ever won from opposition when, at the time of that election, uh, the Labour leader has been more popular than the Conservative incumbent. So, uh, you know, Goff, Bob Hawke, Kevin Rudd. Um, and that is not the case with Albanese. Do you see that as being a hurdle, a, a, a big reason for a big asterisk still to be against Labour's prospects? Is it somehow rather for all that the left derides and despises Morrison, um, he he doesn't appear to be wholly on the nose with the Australian people, not by any means. Yeah, it's a really interesting, almost political science style question because there's a few things that are uh, rolling over the top of analysing this, which I find really interesting. Um, Bonge is dead right. You know, those, those three times post-World War II that we've seen a change of government to the Labor Party, Whitlam, Hawke and Rudd, on all three occasions, 
Whitlam, Hawke and Rudd were more popular than the incumbents that they were taking on. Not hard when you're taking on Billy McMahon, in a sense, not hard when you're taking on Malcolm Fraser with where he landed by the, by 1983. Uh, and in Kevin Rudd's case, uh, he was just stratospheric popular. John Howard was still popular. He had over 50% satisfaction, even though he lost his own seat and lost the election. It's just that Kevin Rudd was more stratospheric with his whole Kevin 07 campaign. Albo doesn't have that versus Scott Morrison. Uh, but, and, and ordinarily you would therefore say, well, you know, you need to have that popularity and it's totemic and it's unusual that you have changes to a, to a Labor government at the federal level uh, without, you know, that kind of sense of movement, if you will, uh, that you've had on those three post-World War II occasions. But I think politics in Australia is becoming more administrative, more managerial, and that makes me look to state politics as well as not just looking at the federal sphere. And at the state sphere, Labor premiers, long-term Labor premiers, who were unpopular opposition leaders, according to the polling, uh, has been a real thing. Bob Carr was deeply unpopular until he became Premier. Uh, Mike Rand was deeply unpopular in South Australia until he became Premier. Jeff Gallup, I think, had a, an approval rating of 14% as an opposition leader for Labor over in WA before he won uh, against Richard Court and ended up becoming a very popular Premier on the way through. And even someone like Steve Brax, uh, who became very popular out of Victoria, he had a very low personal approval rating. Now, that's all state politics, where state unpopular Labor opposition leaders win despite their unpopularity. Because and I, wonder, I wonder about that. I don't want to cut you off mid-flow, but I wonder mm. if part of that is, is that I would question whether, say, in New South Wales or even in Victoria, um, both of which have recently had a change of, uh, of leader or a change back in Victoria's case uh, of the state opposition leader, you know, what proportion of the elected population would be able to name their opposition leader? Same might be in Queensland, WA, um, you know, so that but in they, a, in of, a sense, you, they, in they a, exist in this kind of no, nowhere land until the, the premier of the day gets gets on the nose, as was the case with Kennett, for example, when when Brax got up there, it was because Jeff Kennett had simply pissed off too many people and Brax came through, seemed like a reasonable bloke, and suddenly he was in office. So that it's more possible. I just wonder about the transferability to the federal sphere, because the thing about Albanese is that he has been around for a long time. Most people have heard his name. They know what he looks like. They might know what his voice sounds like, and they're still not loving it. Yeah, but that's why he's... His dissatisfaction ratings are not low. It's just that his preferred prime minister rating is low. And that's common because the incumbent usually is the preferred prime minister. Albanese is an interesting one because he's got very low preferred prime minister ratings, but quite good and indeed better than Morrison a lot of the time, um, satisfaction ratings in terms of, you know, people finding him likable. Now, this does two things, which, which feeds off what you were just saying to you, because this is what I find interesting about it. On the one hand, all those state Labor opposition leaders, unknown as they were at the time, I agree with you, they won because incumbent liberal governments at the state sphere around the country had got to the point of being deeply unpopular. You know, it, it happened in all those states that I mentioned. And so, therefore, there was a, a change of government because the decision was made to turf out the government of the day. At the federal level, the big question, and I'm not making a prediction on this, the big question, the big unknown is, can a non-preferred Labor leader do what has never happened before, as Bond has written about, because the incumbent government is on the nose? You know, federal ICAC, Christian Porter matters, uh, problems with the vaccine rollout, even if they've been fixed. 
uh, you know, the dislikability, frankly, of, of Scott Morrison in a lot of respects with his smugness and his response to the bushfires and all the rest of it. Does that happen? Or do we see what doesn't matter at a state level, but has always mattered at the federal level? Is it a case of Australians don't want to give someone who they don't think is necessarily fairly or unfairly is up to the task of prime minister, the prime ministership, because it's a bigger deal to do that than it is to give a state opposition leader a premiership. It's interesting because in the financial review uh, a week or so ago was a column that was written actually by one of the characters from the chaser, the satirical page. And it was the eight, um, eight best quotes from, uh, you know, most powerful quotes from Scott Morrison. It was satire. So it had all the, I don't hold a hose mate. And, you know, Jenny has a way of putting mm. things and a whole bunch of these other, you know, exercises and gormlessness that have come out from Morrison, which are cringe worthy. You know, when you look at them, they're just painful to look at. They seem so um, uh, inept. And yet the funny thing is, is that I strained my mind to think of a memorable quote. There's one that immediately stands to mind. I'll go to that. But a memorable quote from Anthony Albanese, despite his many years in office, holding significant portfolios. Um, The one that stands out is when he made the announcement he was going to be backing Kevin Rudd on his return and made a defense for the Rudd government, basically critiquing his own colleagues for dumping Rudd in the first place for for Julia Gillard. And then on one of the Rudd attempts to get back in again, he, he stood up and said, I'll be voting for Kevin Rudd. And then he told Julia Gillard he was going to do it. He, was, he got quite tearful in the course of the speech. It's a powerful speech. Albanese knows it's powerful because he actually still has it up on his website. And the memorable quote in that is, uh, is I love fighting Tories. It's what I do. And, <laughs> and that's, that's the kind of the identifier, the rest of the speeches, stuff we hear elsewhere that he was brought up in the three faiths by the, his single mother and, and housing uh, commission about, you know, the Catholic church, the bunnies and the labor party, uh, you know, so that, that has emerged elsewhere, but it's, that's a speech. And that one sentence about fighting Tory, Tories. And yet, Absent that particular speech, which was essentially about the Labour Party and its purposes in a particular leadership scrap, I struggle to remember anything that he's ever said on, on policy or on any other matter where he's really resonated. And it's strange to me, because having worked down in Canberra, obviously, you know, where you know Albanese, he used to do the briefing, the weekly briefing during sitting days out of the uh, Labour Party caucus, all the journos would get there to get the official briefing of what came out of caucus, and you'd see him out and about, he held portfolios and so on. So you got to know him quite well. And he was a thoroughly likable guy, down to earth, smart, good sense of humour, you know, good political instincts. He was probably right about Rudd, to be honest. Um, And yet, there's not a sense coming out of any of that, that he has even got a a policy he can hang his hat on. Scott Morris can, can say, can have the little picture, of, you know, the little model of the boat in his office and say, I stopped these. But there's nothing that you can say about Albanese for all the time he's been there that you can say, I know who Alb- Albanese is. He's the guy who, who what? And I think that that is a problem for him and for the Labour Party and his relatively low profile approach that he's taking at the moment to try to keep the focus entirely on the government isn't helping him establish an identity that makes him a positive choice for people to vote for. That's just my sense of where he is. And which for me is the greatest difficulty for Labour heading into the next election. 
And, and and I completely agree with that because that that that's the debate, isn't it? It's this idea that he he doesn't have that positive reason to bring him in as a as a change agent, which is traditionally what has happened with the Labor Party. So it does become this interesting contest where, you know, normally Labor governments, or indeed any government, frankly, governments only change at the federal level when there is a move on. And it doesn't seem like there is a move on. Governments, incumbents usually win the close ones. Oppositions need a move to be on to become a new government. And it would be a break from tradition. I don't think it's out of the question, by the way, but it would be a break from tradition for Labor to win a close election. And it feels like that's what this one is going to have to be. It doesn't feel like an election that there is a move afoot like there has been when governments have changed previously at the federal level and now another point on that just sorry to cut you off is mm. that this is an this is a government that is essentially well it's a coalition has been in government since 2013 so it's now getting you know by next year it'll be nine years in office that would make it a very very old government yeah by, oh, yeah. by modern standards and yet because it's dumped so many prime ministers along the way there's still the perception that morrison is you know he's young he's vigorous in political terms um that it's not seen as old so that we're in sort of territory that we haven't really known before do you think is it your gut feeling that when people go into the little ballot box next year if we presume it's next year that um they will be making their judgment on an old government or still be perceiving it as a relatively uh middle-aged sort of prime of life government because that can have a factor because the it's time factor plays. Uh, look, I, that, that, that is something we've talked a lot about before, isn't it? Uh, and it's, it's on Labor to highlight the length of the government, even though Scott Morrison is the third prime minister of that government is relatively new, as you mentioned, whereas it's going to be a, a coalition message to say, look, Scott Morrison uh, came in not that long ago and don't let him leave too early before he finishes the job, you know, managing our way out of the pandemic, the economic recovery, all the lines that they will no doubt spin. So that's the, that's another contest right there. An attempt to make this government, I guess, rightly seen to be as an aging government that's been there since 2013 versus an attempt to argue that it's a, a relatively young prime minister. They, they will have conflicting messages on that front. And the coalition, Hugh, will try and uh, have a bob each way. You know, we're an experienced long-term government, so trust us, but don't accuse us of being long in the tooth because look at Scott Morrison. Isn't politics fascinating? Professor Peter Van Onselen, such a pleasure as always to chat. We'll have another yarn next week. Talk then, man. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.